That, that little clip there was taken from a dialogue that happened at Harvard University, and the guy who was talking was named Sean Kelly. He's a professor of philosophy at Harvard, and you could probably tell from his dialogue that this was indeed a philosophy professor, somebody that Pastor Robert Cavoli would spend time with. Um, but... Um, but I, I watched that uh, interview or that discussion a while back, and it's interesting because Sean Kelly is not a Christian, he's not a believer, but he has this profound interest in the Bible, and he said that one of the reasons why he finds the Bible so attractive and compelling is because for him, it, 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 he, he sees in it a resource for combating what he believes is one of the most essential threats to humanity in this current age, this current moment in which we live, and that's nihilism, the threat of, uh, you know, that uh, meaning, meaningful difference is going to be annihilated and all of that. And, and as he goes on, he discusses how this narrative of Scripture, where we meet a God who loves us and who calls us into relationship with himself and who obligates us to love God and to love each other and to steward the world. He says, here he says, I think we find a resource that can help us combat kind of like the meaninglessness that some of us feel, kind of this boredom, this stomach level sadness. And you know, I think what he talks about here in philosophical terms is something that a lot of us have experienced in very practical terms when we've come to the Bible. We have found the Bible to be a resource for us of meaning, of profound transcendence where we can encounter God, where we can find ourselves being called into something deeper and more profound than the meaninglessness of the age we inhabit. So several years ago now, I was reading a book by this man. Uh, this is a German theologian, one of my favorite theologians, whose name is Jürgen Moltmann. And it just sounds like a good German theologian, doesn't it? And I'd read a lot of stuff by Jurgen Moltmann, and I opened up this little uh, book he has on the Holy Spirit, and he introduces the book by sharing his own story. And it turns out he wasn't always a Christian, he wasn't always a theologian. And to my shock and surprise, it turns out that he grew up in Germany during the rise of Hitler, and he became a soldier, a Nazi soldier, fighting for the Third Reich. And he was converted after he was captured uh, as a soldier by the British Allied forces. And he was taken into a, uh, by the way, this is him being <laughs> taken into uh, uh, the Nazi, you know, soldiers or whatever. And then he was captured uh, by the Allied forces and he was taken to a British labor camp. And this is actually the British labor camp that he was in. Pretty fascinating stuff. And it was here that he found himself just overcome with this crippling and overwhelming despair. And uh, it was not long after the war ended and he was still in this camp that, that the horrors of the whole thing that he had experienced really came home to him. All the German cities were laying in ruins, and he said this, the thought of there being no way out was like an iron band constricting our hearts. And each of us tried to conceal his broken heart behind an armor of untouchability. He said, I had dreamed of studying mathematics and physics. Einstein and Heisenberg were my heroes. But in that hut, my dream fell to pieces. What was the point of it all, he asks. And then he says, came for me what was the worst of all. On September 
in September 1945 in Camp 22 in Scotland, we were confronted with pictures of Beslan and Auschwitz. They were pinned up in one of the huts without comment. Slowly and inexorably, the truth filtered into our awareness and we saw ourselves mirrored in the eyes of the Nazi victims. Was this what we had fought for? Had my generation as the last been driven to our deaths so that the concentration camp murders could go on killing and Hitler could live a few more months? The depression over the wartime destruction and captivity without any apparent end was exacerbated by a profound feeling of shame of sharing in this disgrace. That was undoubtedly the hardest thing and the stranglehold that choked us. But then in this camp, he had this profound conversion experience and he says it came through his engagement with the Bible. He says this, in a Scottish labor camp, I was given a Bible. There's a copy of a German Bible that was given out to prisoners in this camp. He says, in a Scottish labor camp, I was given a Bible by a well-meaning army chaplain. Some of us would have rather had a few cigarettes. I read it without much comprehension until I stumbled upon the words of the Psalms of Lament. Psalm 39 held me spellbound. There were the words of my own heart, and they called my soul to God. Then I came to the story of the passion, and when I heard Jesus' death cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I knew with certainty, this is someone who understands me. I began to understand the assailed Christ because I felt that he understood me. This was the divine brother in distress who takes prisoners with him on his way to resurrection. I began to summon the courage to live again, seized by that great hope. This early fellowship with Jesus, the brother in suffering, the redeemer from guilt, has never left me since. I never decided for Christ as often as demanded of us, but I am sure that then and there, in the dark pit of my soul, he found and he chose me. Now, two observations that I, I have for our purposes this morning from that compelling and beautiful story. Number one is that when Jurgen Moltmann first engaged with the Bible, he was the merest novice. He grew up in a secular home, no faith, and he said he read for ages without comprehension. He just didn't understand what he was reading. Second observation is that despite not being at that time a Bible scholar, knowing original languages, having a great deal of understanding of Scripture, despite all of that, in the pages of Scripture, he encountered the true and living God. And his hope was reignited. And his life was transformed by this personal encounter, this engagement with God that came through the Bible. Listen, you know, we began a few weeks ago this, this series called What is the Bible? And for the last few weeks, we've been talking primarily about what the Bible is, kind of, uh, you know, it's this collection of ancient writings, uh, both divine and human, uh, written by people over a 1,500-year period of time. We've been kind of talking about what the Bible is. Today, I want to talk to you about how the Bible can change your life. I want to talk to you about how 
the Bible can play a profoundly transformative role in your life. And I want you to know that like Jurgen Moltmann in that prison camp, you don't need to have a lot of knowledge. Uh, some of you, you have very little knowledge when it comes to the Bible. We're talking about all this stuff and you're like, I don't understand all this stuff. You know, some of you, of course, have been walking with Jesus for a very long time. Some of you, it's all just beginning and new. But I want you to know that wherever you are at, you can actually engage with God in the pages of these sacred writings. And so what we're going to do today is I just want to unpack for you, I want us to explore three metaphors that the Bible gives to us about how it can have this personally transforming role in our life. The first metaphor is taken from 2 Peter chapter 1. And what I want you to see from this text is that the Bible can be for you a lamp in your darkness. The Bible can be for you a lamp in your darkness. Look at how Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. He says, and we have the prophetic word. Now, here he's talking about the sacred writings that were given through the prophets of old. Uh, if he were writing today, he would also be talking about the New Testament writings. He says, we have this collection of writings, uh, the Bible. We have the Bible. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which he says, you do well. He says, you do well to pay attention to this collection of writings as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says, you ought to pay attention to this collection of writings like a lamp that was lit in a dark and dreary and dirty room and illumines the place and drives out the darkness and exposes the dirt and brings warmth and light into that dark place. And it's an arresting image that he gives us in this text. I love this passage because note, he, he, he tells us in this text what the Bible is and also what the Bible is not what we should expect and what we shouldn't expect. Notice, notice he tells us in our text that the Bible, it, what it's not, he says, the Bible, it's not the sun. He says, the day is coming when the dawn will rise. And when the sun comes, what happens? The sun is so bold to illuminate everything, right? And he says, the day is coming when we shall know even as we are fully known. When Christ returns and in the brightness of Christ's glory, we will know in its fullness who God is and who we are finally at last. But until that day when the sun rises, we are not given the sun. Instead, we are given a lamp in the darkness. And what does a lamp do? Well, again, like the, the lamp is not like the sun. It doesn't expose everything. And of course, the Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know. You know, there is so much knowledge about reality, about ourselves, about the world that we, quite frankly, lack. Now, a lot of us don't know this, but you are ignorant on a whole lot of stuff. Amen? I remember uh, reading through Thomas Akempis's, uh Imitation of Christ a long time ago. And he's got this, uh, I remember this little proverbial saying, he says, uh, thinkest thou knowest much, knowest also this, that there is much which thou dost not know, <laughs> which I love. And listen, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know. We would wish for a sunlight that would expose every aspect of knowledge 
about the origins of the world and how it all began and how it all developed, about every ethical question, every political issue we face in our life. The Bible doesn't reveal everything there is to know. Of course, the Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God. God's self is such that he is infinite and immortal and eternal. He is an infinite ocean of being and beauty and love. And don't think for a moment that in our hearts and minds, which are just a Dixie cup, we can gather up the fullness of that infinite ocean. And so the day will come when we will be exposed to God in all of its glory, but until then we're given a lamp. But a lamp is good, because what does a lamp do? Well, I think about a lamp uh, that you hold that might guide you down a path and illumine the path before you. And of course, God's word is that lamp to us. It guides us and it directs us ethically and morally on the path we should walk. And of course, sometimes uh, a lamp, if you turn it on in a dark and dreary and dirty room, it will expose the dirt and all the scary stuff that's there so that it can be cleaned. And of course, a lamp, if you light it in a dark room, it can bring warmth and light and joy. And God's word can do all of this to us. You know, this is how Moltmann experienced it in that dark and dreary labor camp when he was in the grip of crushing despair and, and meaninglessness. A shaft of immortal, eternal light broke into his heart through the pages of scripture. And he woke up to God. And God didn't reveal to him in that moment why and, and every answer to every question he had about World War II and all of the wrongs around him. But he knew this, in this light, in the dark place that came, it exposed to him that he had a divine brother in the midst of suffering, even Jesus. And of course, this has been God's word for many of you. God's word has been a light for you in your dark places. You know, when you've been in the dark place of a hospital room or in a dark night of the soul or maybe in a period of suffering, the shaft of God's word has broken in and it has held you and it has, it has kept you and it has brightened your darkness. I was talking to my daughter the other day. She's in a Bible class in college and she said, you know, the Bible teacher got up and started going off about how comforting the Bible is. And she said, I don't find the Bible that comforting. I find it disturbing, you know, and, uh, because there's a lot of disturbing stuff. And she's right. The Bible isn't all comfort. There's a lot of troubling, disturbing, disconcerting stuff in there. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible. But I said to her, I said, you know, I said, you're right. There's a lot of disturbing stuff in the Bible. But, you know, when I go to a hospital room, when I'm visiting somebody, when somebody's on their deathbed, I said, I visit a lot of people who are dying. And I said, I don't bring Oprah's, you know, best words. I like Oprah, for the record. But in a time like that, you don't need her words. You need words that are eternal and life-giving. And I said, honey, when I'm on my deathbed, when I'm dying, you know, I love the Lord of the Rings. You know, I, I love Harry Potter. Don't read to me Harry Potter when I'm dying. Come with Psalm 23, come with Isaiah 40, come with Isaiah 25, come with Revelation 21, come with John 14. Give me words of life that will sustain me in the darkness. And this is God's word. It is a lamp in the dark places. And it can be that for you if you open it up. 
and you make it a part of your life. You give an option for God to break in with that light. So number one, the Bible can be for us a lamp in our darkness. But secondly, the second metaphor I wanna unpack for you, it's not only a lamp in the darkness, but the Bible can also be for us bread in our wilderness. Bread in our wilderness. You know, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, he quoted at the devil the Bible. And one of the things he told the devil, he said this, you know, the devil said, hey, if you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. And he replied, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Humans are sustained not only by bread and physical nourishment, We need a spiritual nourishment to live and to be sustained when it seems like we are walking through those desert places. And what is the desert? What is the wilderness? And it is those seasons of of our life in between Exodus and the promised land. It is is those spaces we inhabit where life-giving resources are thin and it's difficult to get by. And we need spiritual nourishment. And Jesus quotes back at the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's interesting, this this verse right here is actually taken from Deuteronomy chapter eight, where in that text, God is speaking to his people about how he sustained them with manna in the wilderness. And he uses the bread they received from heaven that nourished them and kept them through the wilderness. He uses that as an analogy for God's own voice, his own word that he speaks to his people that when they imbibe it, when they chew on that word, it sustains and nourishes them. And it is interesting actually to, to, to kind of explore this analogy between manna in the wilderness and God's word that sustains us in our wilderness. You know, we've talked a bit about manna in the past, but there's just a few observations I want to make about God's peculiar provision of manna for his people in the wilderness that I think have tremendous application for God's word to us in our wilderness. And three things. Number one, what do we learn about manna in the wilderness? Well, number one, manna was strange. It was weird. In fact, they named the thing, what is it? Because when they looked at it, they were like, is this the bread from heaven? (laughs) Like, it's weird. It's strange. Uh, You know, um, some scholars suggest that uh, manna, or the substance called manna, was actually the excretion of a certain bug that lived parasitically on local tamarisk trees in that area of the world. And I'm not kidding. So because the sap in the trees is so low in nitrogen, the bugs would eat like crazy to get proper nutrition, and they would excrete these white, yellowish balls of liquid that would fall to the ground and quickly turn into dry flakes. And it was white, flaky, nutritious, and sweet. It would appear in the morning, but as the day wore on, it would become ruined, which of course is very, very similar to how manna is described in the text of Scripture. And it's interesting because nomadic Bedouin tribes to this day eat a substance they call manna, and it's precisely secreted bug juice. Now, whether that is what the biblical manna was or not, I don't know. But even if it's not, get this, manna was very strange. And if God hadn't said, that's the stuff I fed you to eat, they wouldn't know because they would have been like, is that the edible? Is it edible? We're not sure. Secondly, manna... 
Manna was not the food of the promised land. They would get to the promised land, and when they got there, manna would be no more, and instead they would enter into a land that was flowing with milk and honey and bread aplenty. And so manna was not the food of the promised land. And then thirdly, although it wasn't the food of the promised land, manna was sufficient to sustain them in the wilderness. It was God's strange and gracious provision to get them through the wilderness. And I think this is so analogous to our experience of the Bible. So the Bible, like manna, is experienced by us very often as strange. Can I be real a second for just a millisecond? Pull down my guard and tell, you, tell the people how I feel a second. That was from Hamilton, by the way. Um, I saw it last week. It was in my head. Listen, just imagine you get up tomorrow morning. It's a lovely overcast day. You have your coffee in your hand. And inspired by this fantastic sermon, you get up. That was a joke. But you get up to read the Bible. And you sit down in your favorite chair. And you see the sun rising. And you open up. And maybe you're, you're going through some difficult stuff. And you're looking for that light in the darkness. But you're in Judges. And you read about this guy named Ehud who goes into this very overweight king's quarters whose name is Eglug. And he takes a knife out and stabs him in the stomach and pulls it up there and everything comes out from inside of him. And the story ends. Or maybe you, you, you're not there. Maybe you're, you're opening up to First Chronicles and you encounter not one, not two, not three, but nine straight chapters of genealogies. You know, and, and you're just thinking, where is the word of God in this? You know, um, or maybe you turn up to open the Psalm 137 and it begins well enough. You know, we sat down by the rivers of Babylon and we wept and it sounds good. You know, and then you get to the end and he's like, and God, would you dash their children against the rocks? And you're just thinking, this is strange. And I don't see how this is spiritual nourishment. And listen, uh, the Bible can be strange to us. C.S. Lewis, and I was encouraged because who doesn't love Lewis, right? But in his comment about the Bible, he said this. He said, to the, to the human mind, this working up of human material, speaking of the Bible being both human and divine, seems no doubt an untidy and leaky vehicle for God's word. We might have expected, we may think we should have preferred an unrefracted light giving us ultimate truth in systematic form, something we could have tabulated and memorized and relied upon like the multiplication table. But that's not what God gave us, is it? Instead, he gives us this fascinating, he, what he gives us is way better than multiplication tables, friends. But it's strange and it's not the food of the promised land. Again, one day we are going to know even as we're fully known. I think we profess to know way too much from this, this ancient collection of writings. One day we will fully know even as we are known. But we need to have the humility to recognize that right now, you know, we're not there. And yet what God has given us is sufficient for us to sustain us in the wilderness. This collection of writings is spiritual nourishment for the soul. And you know, that's what Jurgen Moltmann found in 
that prison camp. You know, a little bit later in that same story, he says that he had had with him a copy of Goethe's poetry. And he said for a little bit, he said it kind of like awakened in him his experience from childhood when he first encountered that. But then he said it just became dead to me and it was just not helpful. And friends, there will come a moment in your life for some, it came a long time ago, when another YouTube video, another uh, talking head on television, another clip, another uh, social media post, another tweet or whatever, another book or what, it's just not, it's not sufficient to nourish your soul. You need something that's older than you, that's wiser than you, that's been around so much longer than you, that you can go back to, that you don't understand readily the first time around. It doesn't yield like any good piece of art. It's best up after your first or second or even your 25th read. But you keep going back to it because in the pages of this text, as strange as it may feel sometimes, you have found nourishment to your soul. And so what I want to exhort you to is to treat the Bible like bread that you would take daily. Submit to the regular rhythms of putting yourself under the the authority of God's word by being in regular worship and hearing God's word preached. Submit yourself to the discipline of daily reading and meditating on and thinking through and studying and memorizing God's word. And over time, you will find that it it provides spiritual nourishment and sustenance that actually carries you through to engage in the work God has for you. You know, the best luminaries of the world is seen. They've known that they need something outside of themselves that will nourish them. You know, I was reading recently even about Gandhi. Gandhi spent almost every day of his life reading through the Sermon on the Mount. He understood better than a lot of Christians do that spiritual nourishment must be taken if you are going to engage in real work of loving neighbors and of enemy love and of bearing wrongs in yourself and working out of a place of nonviolence and forgiveness and grace. You need something outside of yourselves, right? And this is what the daily habit of engaging in God's word, this is what sitting underneath the preaching of God's word does. Over time, it nourishes and sustains you like bread in your wilderness as we lead, as we walk together on this journey to the promised land. So number one, the Bible is a lamp in our darkness. Number two, the Bible is bread in our wilderness. Can I do one more? I'm going to no matter what, so... I just wanted to hear it. I wanted to know that you wanted it, you know. (laughs) Thirdly and finally, the Bible can be for us a living word from God. Check out Hebrews 4, very popular passage of Scripture. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know, I've read this like many of you many, many times. I had it committed to memory, probably like some of you. I had never really paid much attention to the context. And it's pretty fascinating when you look at this text in the context. This is the conclusion of an argument that's been going on in the book of Hebrews for two chapters. And it's an argument that's building out a singular text of Scripture from Psalm 95, where God says this, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
That's from Psalm 95. And he quotes that not once, not twice, but three times in Hebrews 2 and th- or 3 and 4. And what he's doing is he's saying, look, today, if you hear God's voice, I want you to respond. And then he concludes it by saying, because that voice is living and active and sharp and it's penetrating. Or we could put it like this. On the one hand, we could say that the word of God happened. The word of God happened. God spoke in time past to the prophets. Uh, God spoke in time past by his son. The word of God happened, and we have this collection of writings because the word of God happened at times in the past. So this is a word that comes from yesterday. And it's fascinating because everybody who wrote this book is long dead. And the audience that originally received it is also long dead. In fact, even the languages that it was written in, Hebrew for, for, for generations was a dead language. It was just revived after Israel became a nation back in the early part of the 20th century. And of course, Koine Greek is also a dead language today. And so it's a dead language, dead people, dead audience, dead authors. And yet he says this can this text that was written in time past yesterday can be for us a living word where God actually speaks his word to us afresh as his word comes to us as it's read and as it's preached. Or we could put it like this, the word of God happened and the word of God happens. But the word of God happens today in a way that's distinct from the, how the word of God happened back then. You know, when the word of God happened then, it was fresh revelation. It was new revelation. It was different revelation. It was progressive. That kind of carried the story forward. But when the word of God comes to us today and it awakens us, it's not a new and different word. Rather, it is an amplified way of saying the old word in fresh ways, in fresh places, and in fresh applications to your life. Maybe a couple stories would help. So, one of the most famous converts of the church was a man named St. Augustine. Actually, he wasn't St. Augustine then. He was just Augustine, right? He didn't become a saint until later. But Augustine grew up, you know, like, like many young 20-somethings today, he grew up, you know, sexing and drinking and drugging. I don't know if he was drugging, but he was, and he was pursuing his own prominence and position and power and, uh, and, and he, he entered in, at a, at a point in his life, into this struggle where he felt this pull on the one hand, a pull of kind of his lust from his flesh for power and prominence and a sexual experience. And then he felt this pull from God to actually surrender. And, um, and he's wrestling with this and he has this conversation with a friend of his who, is, who has surrendered his life to Christ. And he's thinking, I need to do that, I need to do that, but I can't do that, I don't want to do that. And he's, he's struggling and he's wrestling. And about that time, he walks out into his garden and he hears these children out, I don't know, next door, singing this little ditty that uh, had this little refrain that said, take up and read, take up and read. I don't know if that was the melody, but it was something like that, I'm sure. And he took that as God speaking to him. And so he, um, he did what most of us should probably not do. He played Bible roulette. And he opened up the Bible and he said the first place that he read, he would take as a word of God directly to him. 
And Augustine opened up to Romans chapter 13, verse 14, and it said this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then and there he felt apprehended by God's love and he surrendered his life to Christ. He was inspired to even do that because he had heard a story of another famous convert whose name was Anthony, who was a young man back, I don't know, it was like the second or third century, who was very wealthy, very affluent. And he was a young man, had everything going for him, all this money. He walks into a church service and he heard this text read out when he walked in. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And he heard that not just as a word to them back then, he heard that as an as a amplified word to himself here and now. And he sold everything that he had and he went out in the desert, became this praying monk, this mystic, this incredible thinker because he heard a word from God. And here's the possibility because God is alive and active in our world today by his spirit. Is that as we open up this ancient collection of writings, it doesn't matter if you're a novice or you've been at this for a very long time. There can be moments, there can be times where the spirit of God awakens you to something and you feel called to do something in light of direct revelation from this text. Now, you've got to be careful because this can be abused. It can be manipulative. It can be coercive, as in, well, God told me to do this, you know. So some of the most dangerous words that can ever proceed from the mouth of a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. And you've got to be careful about just opening up and taking any old text of Scripture because you might rip it out of its context. There's an old preacher story about a, a lady who was wrestling, you know, because inside, you know, she was married, but she didn't like her old husband. And she had met this new guy and she was attracted to him. And she was like, what should I do? What should I do? And she opened up her Bible. And the first passage she turned to was Ephesians chapter four that said, put on the new man. <laughs> and you can take things out of context and say, oh, this is a word. No, the word to Augustine, the word to Anthony were deeply and intrinsically connected to the word that was spoken through the mouth of Jesus and through the mouth of Paul. But that word was amplified and it came fresh to them. And that means simply this, along with our daily habit of submitting ourselves to the discipline of being in God's word and opening ourselves up to God's voice as he might speak, is we need to enter into our Bible experience. We need to enter into our church experience with prayer and openness. It's interesting, he talks in our text about how the word of God that's living and active is sharper than any two-edged sword. But in the original language, that word sword could actually be translated as dagger or maybe a knife. And I think about Jake who makes knives in the back. Um, you know, a, a double-edged knife, and it could actually be translated as like a scalpel that cuts and that's, that's used for surgery. And although, as we said, that the, the Bible is like bread that we consume in the wilderness, the Bible isn't just something we take and consume. The Bible is something that does something to us. And very often we walk out of church and uh, we want to critique the preaching or the message or the Bible 
or we get into our Bible reading, we want to pull the whole thing apart. And yet there's a, there's a place for honest questions. Please hear me. There's a place for critiquing the preacher. That's fair. That's fine. Do that. But you be careful. Be careful. Because at the end of the day, it is not God's word that's on the operating table that's being dissected by you and the scalpel of your own intellect. You are the one that's on that table. God wants to put you on that table and open you up. You know, what you think about the Bible is interesting. What I think about the Bible, how I interpret the Bible is interesting. What I think about the sermons, what you think about the sermon is interesting, but it's just not that interesting. What's profoundly more interesting is what God thinks about us and how God might want to lay us out and open us up and do work in our lives, which means we need to, we need to approach this ancient collection of writings with humility and with openness and on our knees in prayer and dependence for God to speak, for God to feed and nourish, for God to enlighten and sustain us as we continue this journey together through the wilderness into our promised land. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come to you and we confess, O oh God, that we are small creatures in this wide cosmos after all. And there is so much we're ignorant of. There are so many places where we feel in darkness because of our ignorance, because of our own stupidity and the darkness we've taken ourselves in willfully. God, we are tired and we need sustenance. We need strength in this journey through our wilderness. And God, we just pray that you would make us a people that is hungering for your word, that feeds on your word, that submits to your word, and that more than all of that is open to your voice as you speak. That we would heed that call today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. God, protect us from hard hearts. Protect us from mere critical attitudes and minds and make us open, O oh God, to your voice that can sustain us and enlighten us and strengthen us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is our living word, who has come among us for our healing and salvation. Amen.